Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. I'm so excited you've decided to join us and I want to thank all of you for sharing out the podcast and for writing reviews and for asking questions and posting on the website, making comments, all those good things that help our podcast grow. And we love the feedback, we love the questions, anything that we might do to better serve you in this regard. We have a few awesome things coming up. We've actually been spending the last six months or so preparing some really great things. So our brand new website is almost done. It has taken so much more work than I thought it was going to, but it is, it's beautiful and its messaging is more clear. I know that you're going to love it and it's going to make it easier for you to share with your family and friends and others what it is we're doing here at the Mission Driven Mom. In conjunction with that new website, we're also going to be offering some merchandise soon. We've been working on getting some really fun sayings on t-shirts and sweatshirts and some caps and aprons and things like that. And when that website launches, then you'll be able to start purchasing some merchandise that's MDM branded. So that's really fun. The book is just about ready to go. That uh, the the, the book launch will be happening here in the next uh, month or two. I have actually rewritten some sections to create better clarity and to add more help. Um, I've included some things that weren't there before that I hope will be of benefit to you in striving to understand the seven laws and better live them. And of course, we've got the new cover with Richard Paul Evans endorsement on it. So I'm really excited about that. And we will keep you posted as to when the book will be available for either pre-sale or sale. But that's coming up pretty quickly. And we've decided on our theme for next year's MDM celebration event. And we will be making that big announcement soon. If you do not belong to our email list, so you don't get some of those notifications, go ahead and go to themissiondrivenmom.com. You can opt in for the audio book or you can just send us your contact information. You can also opt in in the Facebook group if you have not joined it. The Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group has an opt in for the audio book there too because we will be sending out some discounts and um, promotional information and all that kind of stuff that you may want to have. So today we get to talk about Jacques Lucerne. And I do not speak French. Blaine actually speaks French pretty decently, my husband. But I do not, and so that is the best I can do. And he was a French resistance hero. He wrote a book called And There Was Light, which is essentially about the first 21, 22 years of his life. And then the curtain kind of closes and he, you know, wants a little bit more privacy, I guess, on the rest of his life. But he felt that it was important to tell his story of resisting the Nazis during World War II in France. And I'm going to actually read some different 
sections, small sections from the book for you because the way that he says things is just so beautiful. But I want to tell you about him as a truly mission-driven story. And it's really easy to see these, especially the four foundational laws in place in his life. And then the first major call that he receives when he knows he's to aid in the resistance movement and he's not sure how and then how that process plays out. And then, of course, you know, he married, had children, became a professor, wrote his book, you know, answered other calls later in life in order to be of benefit to others and share those things that he had learned. And I don't know, just a really, really amazing guy. I would highly recommend that you get the book and read it. You can read it with your families. So let's dive in to Jacques' life. Jacques. Jack. I'm not sure what I should call him um, in this podcast, but he was born on September 19th, 1924. And this is what he said about his parents. My parents were ideal. My father, a graduate of a school for advanced physics and chemistry and a chemical engineer by profession, was both intelligent and kind. My mother, who had studied physics and biology herself, was completely devoted and understanding them. Uh, an understanding. Both of them were generous and attentive. Why say all these things? As a small boy, I was not aware of them. The small boy attributed no special qualities to his parents. He did not even think about them. There was no need for his parents loved him and he loved them. It was a gift from heaven. My parents were protection, confidence, warmth. When I think of my childhood, I still feel the sense of warmth above me, behind and around me, that marvelous sense of living, not yet one's own, but leaning body and soul on others who accept the charge. He goes on to say, my parents were heaven. I knew very early, I'm quite sure of it, that through them another being, and he puts a capital B, another being concerned himself with me and even addressed himself to me. The other I did not even call God yet. My parents spoke to me about God, but only later. I had no name for him. He was just there, and it was better so. Behind my parents there was someone, and my father and mother were simply the people responsible for passing along the gift. My religion began like this, which I think explains why I have never known doubt. And there's some beautiful spiritual experiences that he shares in this book that I'll get to in just a little bit. So he talks about this wonderful childhood that he had. His parents were very attentive and loving and educated him as much as they could and just cared for him really well. And so then at, I don't know, five or six, he went to school and he was a good student. He did well there. And then one day, an event completely changed his life when he was seven years old. He said, on the 3rd of May, I was at school as usual, the elementary school in the part of Paris where my parents lived. At 10 o'clock, I jumped up with my classmates who were running for the door to the playground outside. In the scuffle, an older boy who was in a hurry came up from back the back of the room and ran into me accidentally from behind. I hadn't seen him coming and taken off guard, lost my balance and fell. As I fell, I struck one of the sharp corners of the teacher's desk. I was wearing glasses because they had discovered I was nearsighted. The glasses were made of shatterproof glass and it was just this precaution that was my undoing. The lenses did not break, but the blow was so violent that one arm of the spectacles went deep into the tissue of the right eye and it tore away. 
I lost consciousness but came to immediately after being carried to the school playground. The first thing that occurred to me, I remember vividly, vividly was my eyes. Where are my eyes? So they try as hard as they can to save one or the other of his eyes. His right eye is completely gone and has to be removed and his left eye also was too damaged and he becomes completely blind. What's so interesting about his story though is listen to what he says. Every day since then I have thanked heaven for making me blind while I was still a child, not quite eight year old, not quite eight years old. I went blind at the age of eight and am still blind and what I experienced then I still experience every day. So he talks about how he recovered very quickly, especially because he was young. Over a pretty quick period of time, he started to experience this light all around him. And things started to take on a color. He said that growing things had color, human beings had color, and he never felt entirely blind. You know, when you lose one sense, the other senses become heightened. And so his, of course, hearing and his sense of touch became very heightened and he could tell where he was pretty well a lot of the time. But he said he, he, he calls his book and there was light because in his blindness, there was always light. He never felt like he couldn't see strange as that is to say (laughs) he always felt like he could still see as well as anyone else and there's a few reasons for that one is because he had this light that he was encompassed by and that light taught him things when it grew when it decreased And it was key in learning to love himself and especially in his experiences with self-management and self-discovery. Being blind really owned his character. Like it made him a much better person at a much younger age. He understood people on a level that children his age and sometimes adults maybe never do. He was able to tell who he could trust and who he couldn't trust, where he was, what things brought him joy, because he wasn't deceived by his eyes. He had to listen to, he had to listen to the feelings inside himself and his interactions in the world and how they, what they communicated to him deep inside. And so you could really say that his communion with God was really magnified and intensified. I want to read you a couple things that he talks about that were part of this process. He already loved God and there's some experiences that I'll share with you where his love of God and his understanding and his ability to listen to God was deepened more and more as he grew older. But learning to really love himself in terms of being able to manage himself He learned to love people in real ways. The principles that he came to understand as he he grew to love truth, his understanding of friendship, of how to love others. I mean, he talks about love often and that love is the only way. And that principle of love is encompassing all others. Really so beautiful. So he says, when the loss of my eyes had not 
what the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. Fear made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before I knew just where everything was in the room, but if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. When I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So it, is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? Armed with such a tool, I then had a moral code. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. And then he goes on to say it was the same with love. And then he goes on to talk about the principles of love that he learned and what a huge difference they made in the way he lived his life. So he, he gained these lessons very young. And over the years that followed his going physically blind, he learned all these lessons about how to manage himself emotionally and the, the intense connection between how he managed himself emotionally and how he managed himself physically. I think that's so fascinating that someone that is blind can teach us how our emotions are blinding us physically. Like really, we are seeing the wrong things, noticing the wrong things, focusing on the wrong things because we think that we can see. So this training for him was absolutely critical. He, he said that the same thing happened with voices. A beautiful voice, and beautiful means a great deal in this context, for it means that the man who has such a voice is beautiful himself, remains so through coughing and stammering. An ugly voice, on the contrary, can become soft, scented, humming, singing like the flute, but to no purpose. It stays ugly just the same. So he could discern, he began to learn to discern the character of people through their voices. And later on, this was huge in his ability to offer real important aid in the resistance movement. But his ability to manage himself, first of all, and then his ability to understand love, expanded to an ability to discern the character of others through really listening and paying attention to their behavior and this it, just this unbelievable skill of discernment was so honed by the time he was 16 years old that he really could not be deceived. It's really fascinating. And I wonder, I've never heard of a story quite this way by a blind individual. And of course, it may be his personality and temperament. It may be certain spiritual gifts, which he inherently had. But I do think it was also a matter of his personal character 
was devoted to understanding these things. Like there was something inside of him that was determined to pay close attention and to learn from these interactions in the world that were teaching him important things. He learned all about friendship. That was also very important, the principle of being a real friend and who true friends are, swearing to each other to tell each other the truth, being loyal to a fault. He tells a story, Gene was one of his, you know, was his closest like bosom friend for a long time. And at one point they kind of fell in love with the same girl. But they are so committed to telling each other the truth and so loyal to each other, almost to a fault, they both end up losing the girl. And Jacques continues to like be in love with her for quite a while after they leave the town where they were, where she was. But they just were so, all through that experience, so kind to each other, so patient with each other. Such a huge test of their friendship that they clearly overcame that. Of course, he had a huge love for music and talks a lot about things that he learned from music and from musicians. He absolutely adored Shakespeare and he would dramatize it in his head. He was actually really brilliant. In fact, I'll talk to you for a minute about his education because it's quite fascinating. After he went blind, he wanted to go back to school where all his friends were. And there weren't a lot of provisions in the 1920s and early 30s in France for blind children. And so he didn't have a lot of options, but they had never let a blind child into that school. And so his mom was behind him all the way. And once he realized that he could read with Braille and that he didn't have to you know, have education closed off to him. Then he taught himself Braille really quickly and he just started to consume books. And so they were able to get special permission for him to go back to school. But the principal was like, okay, but we can't really make special provisions for him. So if he can't keep up, then we'll have to ask him to leave. So he worked really hard and his mom helped him to kind of keep up in his classes and he studied really hard and at the end of that year he came in first in his class and he said you know it was a small accomplishment you know by the world standards but for me it was huge and it told me that I was just still completely normal and that I could still succeed and thrive so he really was uh, quite a smart kid and of course clearly one of quite a noble character that he would change his behavior in order to partake in this light that he could see that could encompass him and was trustworthy and loyal and kind and loving and all those things but it was also smart he said in two years i composed 10 shakespearean tragedies granted not one of them reached the stage of being written down i was not at all concerned with the written text i was not composing i was creating between a Latin translation and a problem in geometry, I took refuge in fantasy and in the theater. He loved Shakespeare, spent a lot of time in Shakespeare, and was just continuing to educate himself and grow as a young man. Well, then, of course, we know what started happening by the time he was 13. The radio in France was starting to air these talks, these speeches by Hitler. He says, I turned the buttons of the radio to make the small tour of Europe I made every night. And what was that noise I heard all of a sudden on radio Vienna? Waves of shouting ha hammered against the loudspeaker, a mass of humanity in delirium. So this was his first introduction to Hitler. 
and he started to see the people in France were changing a little bit. He became more aware. He started educating himself on what was happening in the world. The newspapers, he said, started to lie to the French people and not print the truth. And he said, from my point of view, this refusal to face reality was the stupidest thing I had met in my 13 years. So he already is starting to have feelings about what's going on in Germany, how detrimental it is, what needs to happen, and kind of seeing it change the French people around him. They were already starting to hate the Germans, but he said, thanks be to God, my family dissuaded me. Books and symphonies told me it must not be so. I went on calling them Germans and with respect. So he tried to maintain his respect for individuals, even in the face of the kind of the ugliness that was growing during World War II in Germany. So time goes on, he's studying like crazy. He said, my parents had turned the back part of their apartment over to me. Two small rooms next to each other, opening on a courtyard and completely isolated from the rest of the house down a long corridor with a bend. So he's kind of physically separated from his parents. He's still kind of living at home, but as he approaches 15 and 16 years old, his parents want to give him some independence and some space and allow him to kind of grow up and start living his own life. And so he has a back entrance. He's able to come and go into his own rooms. I think there are two rooms back there that are his. And people would come to see him. He had a really, really incredible group of friends that went to school together. And they would meet in these apartments. And as things are heating up, he and his friends are starting to take the war and what's going on around them more and more seriously. And they feel like they need to do something about it. He said, for our part, we wanted to learn how to live. And that was a much more serious matter. We wanted to learn fast because we felt that the next day it would surely be too late. There were signs of death on land and in the air from the Spanish border to the frontiers of Russia, not just signs, but battles to the death. The feeling grumbled inside us, pressing to come out in the open. Unless we were up to making a better life than the life of our elders, the orgy of stupidity and killing would go on till the end of the world. Let people be silent if they were able to go on living without speaking out. We were incapable of it. As for that fear of theirs, it was indecent and made us feel sick. We had no forbearance toward the philosophers, our teachers, or our families. It was better so, since we needed our strength to prepare ourselves. Students were very serious that winter in Paris. So we go, he goes on to talk about the studying that he's doing. He's just reading, reading, reading. He said, I sat up late at night. I had thrown myself furiously into the study of philosophy. I wanted to understand it all and felt that it was urgent. All the ideas of men who had dedicated themselves to thought, to thought found their way into my head for the first time. From Pythagoras, Pythagoras to Bergson, from Plato to Freud, I examined them as closely as I could. I tormented myself that autumn of 1940. I thought a lot and gave exercise to my thoughts. I tried all the avenues, one after another, the realist, the idealist, the materialist, the spiritualist, the empirical, and the rational, all from Heraclitus 
to William James, no one of them seemed to me without function, but none satisfied me completely. The philosophers put my brain to work and my brain followed them willingly. The discipline they imposed on it strengthened its muscles. My brain used its powers better and found its way faster from day to day, but it never reached port. He is frantically trying to find answers to these problems that are so real all around him. In the Mission Driven Life book, I talk about that those prior laws of life mission, the loving God, loving yourself, which he clearly learned to do that led to better loving others and being more principle centered in the way he lived his life. All of those had been huge priorities for him up to age 16. And there was a a seriousness, a spiritual and emotional maturity about him that was very, very rare in a young man his age. He grew up quickly because of his blindness and because of the world conditions. And so here he is doing his best to gain that love of humanity. He wants to understand the world. He wants to understand what's gone on. He needs to understand history and worldviews and world religions, which is also what I talk about in the book, and how important it is to understand the way people think and the way they believe and who has the best answers and why are those the best answers and how are we supposed to fight back? What's the right thing to do in a situation, the situation in which he finds himself, right? And then Paris, of course, is taken over and they're, other, they're under Nazi rule. What is he to do? How is he to live his life? Who has those answers? And how is he to find principled solutions to real world problems? I mean, this is life and death. This is as serious as it can get. And he needs to know what's real, what's true, and what's right. And he has so honed his conscience and his understanding of right and wrong, and he has become so principled that people who are fearful just are turn him off. People who are unwilling to do something he's angry at that they would be so complacent. And he, he does say at one point that he understands that he didn't have a wife and children to risk. And he and the young men that became involved in his resistance group didn't, had only themselves to risk. They were putting their families at risk too, but maybe it was a little bit different for them. And so he could kind of understand if people with families were a little more hesitant. But even then, he felt that when freedom is at risk, you've just got to risk yourself for freedom, that it's more important even than life. And so he is very devoted to that. And um, he has this history teacher. Let me tell you one more thing about the young men that he was with. Serious questions had priority and how serious we were, even when we were talking about girls. I walked in the middle of this group of friends that would walk together to and from school and was happy, without knowing exactly why, happy to be with men who, like me, were not willing to shut their eyes to life. So they are committed to being the best young men they can be, to figuring out life's questions, to finding ways to insert themselves into the problem and do something. I mean, just, just the waiting and watching is so agonizing. They are anxious to do something. And he's holding back a little bit until he can know for himself what the right thing is for him to do. So he's practicing wisdom in that way. And they have this history teacher. You know, they show up in class and they do their normal stuff. And then he says, 
his learning made us gasp. He made numbers and facts pour down on us like hail. Every now and then he rubbed his hands in a lively and happy way and laughed a small friendly laugh. We were beginning to know him well and saw that what saw that that meant an idea had occurred to him. The syllabus for history stopped in 1918. So in France, they weren't even teaching history after 1918. With the kind of nearsighted caution people thought suitable for courses in school, but for him that was no obstacle, for he would go ahead without any syllabus. He went on past all the barriers, even after the hour for the end of school. If he knew we were not scheduled for other courses, he kept us an hour, even two hours longer. Smiling, he announced, I'm not keeping you. Those who want to leave may do so. It's all right with me. Normally, we all stayed, consumed by that unbelievable whirlwind of facts, information, new angles on all the countries and all the periods, and by his pleas for clarity, common sense, energy, and alertness. All of us, that is, except two, we had noticed them, for they went right out at the hour. It was not long before we found out they had enrolled in a youth movement for collaboration with Germany. So he has this incredible teacher who keeps them longer and who nurtures them on truth. He tells them the truth about Germany, about Hitler, about the Nazi movement, about what's going on in other countries, about what's happening in the war. He tells them about Mein Kampf. He talks to them about the anti-Semitism. And it's this incredible gift he's giving these young men and helping them prepare for what they will do next. So all of this is going on. He's studying, studying, studying. He has this experience where a Jew that he knows disappears. He hears someone say, don't be upset, it's only a Jew. And he thinks about this a lot. And then soon thereafter, he, he, he gets sick. He gets a really bad case of the measles. He falls into a, a deeper and deeper sickness. It's so fascinating, though, because it's a physical illness that he says purges him emotionally. So this is how he explains it. In the first hours of fever, it became obvious that my system was purging itself of a poison and spewing out foreign bodies, but the poison was moral as much as it was physical. Of that, I am sure. When the fever was at its height, I had the shivers, but strange as it may seem, my head was still clear and I watched the battle going on. Emotions were driving my body and my mind every which way. I threw myself forward with fury, as though I were driving off the enemy. Soon the notion that I was sick no longer mattered to me. This was no microbe or virus making its way in. It was resolve. It took me over from head to foot like a conquered land. I could not resist it, for it had taken the wheel. It was driving me to definite destinations, which I had not thought about before it came. This resolve gave me orders, telling me first of all that I must say nothing to my family, at least not right away. I must have a meeting with two of my comrades, with Francois and George by themselves. Even Jean would not be there. Later, I should have to get in touch with about ten more. The list was already made up. My new resolution didn't tell me what to say to them, and that didn't matter, for when the time came, I should know well enough. My only haste was to get my body well again to risk it in the great adventure. So this sickness becomes this spiritual experience 
where he sees his body ill, but his mind transcends the sickness. And he resolves when he is better to actively act in a resistance movement of some kind against the Nazis. So he moves forward with that. He talks to a couple of his friends. That turns into them talking to a few people. He uh, does know what to say to them as soon as they meet, and the ideas just start to come. God just pours information into his mind, and he knows precisely what they need to do, how they need to organize themselves. And he says, we're going to have a meeting of 10 of us. And so they schedule a place and these young men are so anxious to do something that they tell other people and almost 50 young men descend, descend on that first meeting. And it scares him because, you know, they can't be meeting with that many people. It'll, it'll create suspicion. But on the other hand, it was this huge blessing because it created a lot of energy and they could look other young men in the eyes and see the resolve in their, you know, in their faces to do something. And they knew they weren't alone. They knew that they were a band of at least 50 and over time it grew and grew and grew. And he said, okay, this is who we are. This is what we're doing, but we can never meet like this again. We can only meet in twos and threes from here on out. He says, I had become one of the responsible ones. There was nothing anyone could do about that, not even I myself. So as soon as he starts talking to these friends, it's interesting because they just cry for joy. They're so anxious. He said, I was in urgent need of God and I promised myself to pray every day. But what I had was only a purpose and that was not the same thing as having plans. So God starts to show him those plans. He makes everyone swear that they will keep this quiet. They have this meeting. He's one of the responsible ones. He's inadvertently become the head of this movement. And it's interesting because some of the people that he talked to were like, yeah, we were just waiting for you to do something. It's like, I'm, I'm the only blind one. Why were you waiting for me? And it was just his nature and his character and his spiritual and emotional maturity that made him a leader. I mean, it's that We've talked about this in previous mission-driven stories, and I talk about this in the book. When you live those foundational laws, people just see you as a leader. The level of self-discipline that he had, um, the insights, his obedience to conscience, his connection with God and ability to receive and act on revelation made him a leader. And people just looked up to him and expected him to lead, even though they were smart and they had sight and all those other things. So really, really fascinating that his friends looked to him as the leader. This is what he says after he got well and he started working toward building this resistance movement. He said, at the beginning of May, I adopted the ascetic way of life, which benefits a soldier of the ideal. Every day, including Sunday, I got up at half past four before it was light. The first thing I did was to kneel down and pray. This is what he would pray. My God, Give me the strength to keep my promises. Since I made them in a good cause, they are yours to keep as well as mine. Now that 50 young men, tomorrow they may be a hundred, are waiting for my orders, tell me what orders to give them. By myself, I know how to do almost nothing. But if you will it, I am capable of almost everything. Most of all, give me prudence. Your enthusiasm I no longer need, for I am filled with it. 
Then I washed quickly with cold water and looked out of the window of my room to listen to Paris. Aren't we so grateful for people like this? Oh, they're so inspiring. So amazing. So he forms this resistance movement. He starts having these plans pour into his mind and he knows exactly what they need to do. They need to start recruiting. So he forms this little like presidency. There's three of them that try to meet kind of regularly and they're a couple of his closest friends. And so nothing will look suspicious that they come over and spend time with him in his apartment. And his parents live near but down the hall and don't know much about his regular daily activities and so they don't need to know anything and it does they don't need to be fearful and if they don't know anything then they can't betray anything he is assigned the job everyone knows that he would be best for recruiting now that to me and it may seem to you odd at first that he would be in charge of recruiting but it was this deep level of insight into human nature that he had developed that made him capable of discerning someone's character really quickly. He said, the consciences of my companions seemed to lie wide open before me, and all I needed was to read them. As to my own conscience, it was no longer troubled me. I had dedicated it to a cause which must have the power of truth since it was teaching me to speak all those words I had never uttered before. People's consciences seemed to be wide open to him, and he had taught himself to listen to their voices, and he also knew how to listen to their body language. He could tell by listening to them, listening to how much they shifted and tapped their feet and felt and seemed nervous, and he could pay really close attention to the energy that they gave off in being able to discern whether or not they were really trustworthy. How it worked was young men, and in fact, he mentions that all of them were really under the age of 22, most everybody that was part of his movement. And over time, over the next couple years, he ended up interviewing over 6,000 young men. And he admitted 600. So only 10% did he deem trustworthy enough to let into the resistance movement? And it was only on his judgment. Everyone trusted him implicitly. And sometimes he would know within a few seconds of, of meeting with someone. But they had this whole little system worked out where if you were part of the resistance movement and you felt someone, you know, they had these parameters around, you watch them and you pay attention to certain things. And if you feel like they would be a good fit, then you told them to go see the blind man. And they would tell them how to get there. And then they would let Jacques know that, that they were coming. So there were a few keys uh, t that helped him. First of all, if he didn't know they were coming, they just weren't in because the system wasn't working correctly and he wasn't sure he could trust them. So they weren't a referral of someone that someone knew. Then they would come in and they would just talk. And he would just know. Sooner or later, he would just ask them casual questions find out about their lives, and he would be able to tell if they were trustworthy. And what's fascinating about that is there was only one person, and this almost just seems like made up. It seems like unbelievable, but there was only one person, his name was Elio, that they ever let in against Jacques' better judgment. Because he had all the right credentials, 
and he was a little older and had all this resistance experience and he was charismatic and Jacques's dominant emotion with Elio the first time they met was confusion and I've actually been thinking about and learning a lot about confusion and I really do feel like it is a sign that there's something I mean, obviously it's a sign that there's something wrong going on, but often it's a sign that something bad is going on. Like not just wrong, like a mistake, but bad, like someone is betraying themselves or betraying others, disobeying their conscience or those kinds of things. And it's creating confusion around them and confusion around the relationship. So anyway, he had at that point, his group had aligned with another group called Defense de la France. There was a larger group made up of kind of older people and women. And so they partnered with them and now there were several thousand people involved. And some of the leaders of that group and some of his friends kind of talked him into letting Elio in. And he was the one that betrayed them all which is absolutely so fascinating. So, but I wanna say, I wanna read you a couple excerpts here as we're finishing up about his experiences during the resistance and his experiences in, in prison and in the camp. He said, I was madly happy doing this work. To have men in front of me, to make them speak out about themselves, to induce them to say things that were not in the habit of saying because these things were set too deep in them. This filled me with an assurance which was very like love. Around me it drew a magic circle of protection, a sign that nothing bad could happen to me. The light which shone in my head was so bright and so strong that it was like joy distilled. So his faith grew, his love for these men was immense, and his love for the French people grew and grew because he was serving them. He said, I was aware that my conscience was in touch with the conscience of hundreds of others growing in rhythm with their sufferings or their hopes. I was surprised to find that I knew things they had not told me, surprised when I awoke in the morning feeling a sense of purpose, strong and entirely new to me. So he had had goals before to do well in school or whatever the case might be, but this giving himself to a cause higher than himself abandoning his life completely to a mission God had called him to, that purging, that resolution, that conviction that God had planted in his heart. And the people that he had, I mean, he just knew who to talk to. And then as he, as he walked in faith, as he took the next step, then he just knew the next thing he needed to do. And he just trusted that the next thing would come. And it just did. And so he was totally guided in what to say, how to act, what the plan should be. So he's going along doing this work. They grow and grow and grow. And there's this incredible, um, he tells this incredible story about now they have thousands of subscribers and he feels that the most important thing he needs to do is get the truth out. Like that's what needs to happen is that people need to know what the truth is. And in, in this paper that they were printing and handing out to people, they were teaching them, instructing them. He said, we advised the population about ways of spreading passive resistance. They told them the truth about what was happening in the war so they could get the real news. 
He said, we placed our trust in the ideal of Western democracy, and they promoted it to the people reading it. He says, ours was a frankly Christian paper. But let us be clear on this point. We were not protecting any one church at the expense of the others. There were many Catholics among us and very devout, but there were also Protestants equally sincere. We were not even speaking in the name of the churches, for some of our people did not belong to any. It was simply that we stood for Christian morality and its absolute demands for respect and love. So these ideas of Western democracy that are built upon fundamental Christian morality is what they were promoting to the French people. And of course, they had become more and more, since the French Revolution and beyond, more and more of an atheistic people. And so they weren't telling people that they needed likeness. It wasn't about converting to Christianity. It was about being moral people and standing up for truth and standing up for freedom. And in fact, at one point, they take this really courageous step. He said, they had this editorial board that decided what they were going to print. We had to consider whether what we were saying was going to do good or harm to safeguard lives or place them in jeopardy. So there was a lot of wisdom they had to exercise. They couldn't just say, oh, this is true and throw it in the paper. They had to consider the impact on their readers and on the country. When we had to publish our first article on the tortures administered by the Gestapo to arrested members of the resistance, we had more than 30 concrete proofs in our hands. Still, should such horrors really be brought to light, we decided unanimously that they should, but the decision was made only after whole nights without sleep. And even at the last minute, our fingers trembled. The courage that they exemplified is just almost indescribable, just absolutely unbelievably courageous. So Elio gets admitted. Eventually he, I mean, he, he was working with, he was working with the, the Nazis from the beginning, I'm sure. And in fact, later when Jacques was arrested and read out everything that had the report on him, it started the day they let Elio in. And he named names and he gave details and he proved beyond doubt all the things that they had done. They were betrayed. He was arrested. He knew why he was there. He was treated a little bit differently because he was blind. Early on, they start hammering him for information. And they put him in prison and they start bringing him over to this building every day to try to get him questioning and questioning just all day long every day. And at one point one of the men started to beat him, threw him up against a wall and was beating him up. And Jock said to him, you know, you are the biggest coward I have ever met because you know that I can't even fight back if I wanted to. And so he stopped hitting him and they didn't beat him again, which of course obviously helped him to survive. But there's this really awesome story because he had taught himself German, that was part of his self-education. He had learned some and then he was just wanted to know the truth and wanted to be able to listen to the truth for himself. And so he taught himself German, studied it along with all of his other studies. And um, when he was in prison, he could understand what the Germans were saying. And so there was this moment where 
they bring him in, they tell him that he's been found guilty, that there's no question that he's guilty, and that he's going to be put to death. And he says he didn't believe them, that they were going to put him to death. And so as soon as this secretary had finished translating, because at first he pretended like he couldn't speak German. He, had, he only spoke to them in French. And when she, was, when she was done, he said, I said in a voice that surprised even me, for it was very calm, you have not condemned me to death. That changes everything. He says, the major must have expected every reaction except this one, because instead of shouting or laughing, he seemed to be thinking it over. So he decides, he says, this is how the impossible came about. So he decides, okay, fine, let's read the whole report. So for the next five hours, they read the entire denunciation. When it's all over, he accidentally says something to them in German. And then he has this inspiration to use it to his advantage. So he's like, okay, okay, you've got me. You're right, I'm guilty. I've done all those things. I can't even hide from you the fact that I'm speaking German. He already knew who the ones were that had been denounced. And so then he was able to say, okay, well, you know, yeah, okay. Um, I did it, blah, blah, blah. And they don't kill him. They decide, okay, well, he's guilty. So we're going to go ahead and get the names out of him. So for the next five to six months, he's in prison. He tells some stories about what that's like and how hard that is. And I think he was in solitary confinement for a little bit. They don't get anything out of him. And then they send him off to a concentration camp. He has this beautiful reunion with several of the members of the resistance movement that were with him. And they talk all night and they're transported together. But I want to end by telling you a couple really incredible experiences that he has during this time. So at one point, they throw him in the van to take him over to interrogate him again. And the car won't start. So they're trying to figure out how to get the van to start. And finally, they throw someone into the compartment with him, and he's almost on top of him because the compartment is so small. And of course, Jacques is blind, so he can't see who this man is. And he hears the man mutter, Holy Virgin Mother of God, it can't be you, little one. And it's his friend Robert who had also been in the resistance movement, who everybody thought was dead. The Robert we thought had already died. The two of us had an hour on the way to Paris to tell each other everything. They were torturing him systematically at the Gestapo. One of his ears was torn. His voice whistled through his few teeth he had left. Sweat poured down his arms and off his hands as if he had just come out of the water. He told me, that but for his steady concentration on Christ, he would willingly have allowed himself to be killed. They were going to shoot him, but they couldn't say when. All he had to hope for was that it wouldn't be too late. So he is clinging to Christ to not be a traitor and give out names. I just thought it was such a beautiful story because not only because he's clinging to Christ in his times of torture and it's giving him strength, but because before he dies, he's able to see Jacques, who then is able to tell the world not only that he lived, but he held true to his faith to the end and to bear witness of his faithfulness. 
and such an incredible testimony to to Robert, to his courage and faith and dedication to God. So, oh, just I just thought that was beautiful. So then he goes to the concentration camp and he doesn't get put to labor like everyone else. He has this, it, this miracle happens where he has, I mean, one of the people that's there working at the camp gives him a tip, which they, of course they shouldn't give him, and tells him that he should say that he's like a translator or something. And so he lie, he kind of lies and says he's a translator. He does speak German. He doesn't speak Russian, but he's able to pick up pieces of it. And before he's called upon to, to translate in Russian, he's able to learn enough of it to pull it off. He has kind of this easier job in the camp, which helps preserve his life. And then he gets really, really sick. And again, his sickness totally changes him. He is rid of all of his fear. He goes into another world. He said, sickness and pain, yes, but not death. Quite the opposite life. And that was the incredible thing that had taken possession of me. I had never lived so fully before as when he was sick and moving himself mentally out of his body and and communing with God through this sickness. Life had sustained the life in me. The Lord took pity on the poor mortal who was so helpless before him. It was true, I was quite unable to help myself. And so he lives and he no longer feels fearful. And he said he would live on hope. It was the truth. I still had 11 months ahead of me in the camp, but today I have not a single evil memory of those 330 days of extreme wretchedness. I was carried by a hand. I was covered by a wing. Um, I hardly needed to look out for myself, and such concern would have seemed to me ridiculous. I knew that it was dangerous and it was forbidden. I was free now to help the others in whatever way I could help. I could try to show other people how to go about building, how to go about holding on to life. So he gets sick. He clings to God. God heals him emotionally and, and physically and spiritually. He feels this newfound sense of hope. He's absolutely fearless. And he tries to figure out, okay, I'm blind. So what can I do for people? I can try to nurture them spiritually and emotionally too. So he goes around the barracks He says, I could turn toward them the flow of light and joy which had grown so abundant in me. From that time on, they stopped stealing my bread or my soup. It never happened again. Often my comrades would wake me up in the night and take me to comfort someone, sometimes a long way off in another block. Almost everyone forgot I was a student. I became the blind Frenchman. For many, I was just the blind man who wouldn't die. Hundreds of people confided in me. They were determined to talk to me. That was how I lived and how I survived. And he goes on to talk about, he also realized that they needed to hear the truth, that one of the things that was happening is that people were, would get desperate. And so they would make up lies to hurt each other as a, like a survival tool, or they would circulate rumors that were emotionally damaging to other people. And so he was just desperate to figure out what the truth was. So. He would listen to whatever radio or whatever information he could get his hands on, and he would comb through all the information that was coming through. And he would spend, he would basically spent 
his whole day doing this, every day. And it became a huge source of joy to him that his job was to filter through all the lies and to find the truth and then to circulate it through camp. So he would go to different groups that were like having lunch or whatever it was. And he would, he would share out what the truth was. I was forced to measure my words, to hold everything in control, even a smile. All day long I was busy. I hardly had time to think of myself. I could say to myself that I was a kind of doctor. So he would gauge the pulse of how people were feeling and he would go around and basically just give them hope and truth. The remarkable thing was that listening to the fears of others had ended by freeing me almost completely from anxiety. I had become cheerful and was cheerful almost all the time. That's how he survived that last year in the camp. He said, that is what you had to do to live in the camp. Be engaged, not live for yourself alone. The self-centered life has no place in the world of the deported. You must go beyond it. Lay hold on something outside yourself. I think that's a wonderful way to end the story and mission and words of Jacques Luceron, who was just such an amazing man, who clung to those laws of life mission, who sacrificed himself for God, who was carried through incredible hardships and went on to come to the United States, to marry, to have a family, and to, to lead a really long, happy life. There's so much we can learn from him. I'd encourage you again to get his book, And There Was Light, and to read the other stories and experiences that he shares because they're so inspirational. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you ha don't have your audio copy of The Mission Driven Life, head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab that. It will go away when the new website is released, which will be very soon. And if you've not joined our Facebook group, it's the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group. We'd love to meet you there and get to know you. We talk about these podcasts. We share out inspiring quotes and information. We answer your questions and just try to help and guide and inspire in whatever ways we can. Thanks so much for joining me today and I'll see you next time.